0: Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Bright, shining faces as summer is drawing to a close. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's a reality we're all coping with this morning, so I thought I would start off with some good news <laughs> right off the top. Uh, my name is Nick Jankowski. I serve as the Associate Pastor here at Mosaic Church, and it is an honor to be able to worship with you this morning, uh, apparently so, that's what I've heard, there's rumors. <laughs> If this is your uh, first time joining us, or perhaps if you've been up north for, well, it would be the last 10 weeks if you don't know what we're talking about, which, come back to church, thank you for coming back. Uh, we are concluding today our series on the Ten Commandments called Ten Words. And today we are going to be looking at the 10th and final commandments of the Ten Commandments, which Moses delivered to the ancient Israelite people on the slopes of Mount Sinai. But before we jump into God's Word, I would invite you to bow your heads with me, and let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Jesus, you have been so faithful. There are hardly words that we could use to express the goodness of God. So Lord, we come and we give all that we have, our lives and our worship to you. We open our hearts this morning, Jesus, and ask that you would speak to us, Lord, Father, we are people that are in desperate need of your word and of your transforming spirit in our lives, so we ask that you would do that this morning. Meet us where we're at. Help us to walk out of here differently than when we arrived. Lord, we thank you for that and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are concluding our series on the Ten Commandments. By this morning, looking at the final and tenth commandment. And if we were going to sum that up before we even open the Bible this morning, we would probably just sum it as it is the commandment to do not covet. Do not covet. That's as simply as we can sum it up. However, the 10th commandment of all the 10th of all the commandments that we've looked at thus far is probably the most easily relatable commandment of the 10, primarily because I know that every one of us wrestles with the temptation to covet. In other words, everyone sitting here, in some way, shape, or form, struggles with a desire for other people's stuff. We all do it, and we do it all the time. Now you say, that's a pretty bold statement, Pastor, for you to make about me sitting here in church this morning. How can you make that statement? Very simply, for two reasons. I know that we covet because, first of all, every one of us struggles with a little thing called sin. Every one of us has a sin nature inside of us that pulls our desires in a downward direction and seeks to find self-fulfillment outside of God. Every one of us does, because of the sin that resides inside of us. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1. He said, as human beings, we have a proclivity to exchange the glory of God for things that are temporal and earthly as a means to try and fulfill our desires. In that sense, I can tell you with 100% certainty that every one of us every day has coveting standing at the doorstep of our hearts, just knocking. Knocking every day, seeking to gain entrance into our lives. So that's the first reason, is sin. The second reason is because we live in a hyper-covetous culture. It is everywhere. It's hard-baked into our society. Just think about this for a moment. The idea of coveting in our modern culture is something that has largely become normalized and accepted. It's something that is just kind of natural as we go about our business in our daily lives. We are presented with it in every way, different shape, and form. It's become acceptable and normalized. Every day that we get up, we're bombarded by images, by videos, by advertisements, primarily through our phones and on our social media, that are attempting to move our heart down the path of coveting. If you don't believe me, just think for a moment about the billions of dollars that are spent annually by advertising companies betting on your ability to covet, betting on your ability to desire the things that you don't have. They spend millions of dollars to do that. And in doing so, they whisper to our souls that your life would be perfect if you just had X. If you just had X, life would be amazing. And that X comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes as we look at our lives. For some people, X may be a brand new car. If you're talking about me, maybe it's a bigger TV. Maybe it's the latest fashion trend or a higher education. Maybe it's a more compatible spouse. Hello. Or a dream vacation. The truth is, is that whatever X is for either you or for me, our culture is betting that we are going to crave that. And they dangle it in front of our face or on our telephone screens like a carrot hanging on a screen. And here's the crazy part about it, is that most of us are so indoctrinated by this system in which we move and live and find our existence every day that we don't even recognize that we're coveting when we do it, let alone actually stop to think that it's a sin in God's eyes. We don't even recognize it. We're so engrossed and engulfed in a culture that presses us to covet everything we see that we don't even recognize when we're doing it. And so if you're sitting there this morning, perhaps feeling a little uneasy, like, dang, dude came out swinging, man. (laughs) If you're feeling a little bit of perhaps conviction resting on your shoulders, can I just tell you that you're not alone? You're not alone. As I said at the beginning, every one of us covets in some way, shape, or form even and including me. Nowhere has that been more evident recently than when Don and I were down in North Carolina a few weeks, house hunting. And I have learned that through that process, there are few things in this world that have the power to stir up some good old-fashioned coveting in your heart, like that of looking for a new house. It is the perfect storm for fomenting covetous desire in your heart. A confluence of everything that the world tells you that you need in order to be happy, right? And then the bubbling up of this like sin-stained ego in our hearts for what we think we deserve and should have in life. And when we were in North Carolina, baby, I was caught in that storm. It was raging around me. And every home we visited, I was comparing to a list of the things that I coveted most. Now, for those of you who maybe know me a little bit better than others, I bet you wouldn't have to think too hard to guess what was at the top of that list, right? My number one priority was a living room big enough to have an 18-foot Christmas tree. You laugh, but I'm not kidding. I saw an 18-foot Christmas tree at Menards last year, and I was immediately coveting that thing when I saw it. And it's not only that, there was a myriad of other things that were roaming around in my mind and things that I wanted, but the bottom line is that I wanted all the stuff in this house that I didn't have and others did. And so consequently, each home that we walked into, I was comparing to all the perceived deficiencies that I saw in our current home. I was comparing it to my friend's and neighbor's home and kind of like this weird vain attempt by my ego to keep up with the Joneses. And perhaps worst of all, I was comparing it to every luxurious house I had seen on HGTV, (laughs) which is a terrible idea because it turns out that on a pastor's salary, you can't afford a home with an indoor water slide. It doesn't (laughs) happen. It's not possible. And regardless of the source of my desire, the truth was is that I compared because I coveted. And so when I tell you this morning that you're not alone, you're not alone. I struggle with craving other people's stuff as well. And simply because I have the title of reverend in my name does not mean that I am exempt from the temptation to covet. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is not whether or not we covet, because I think most of us here, if we're honest, could probably get on board with the idea that, yeah, there's times when I covet people's stuff. I think the real question that we need to wrestle with this morning is why does coveting matter? Why does coveting matter? Why is God so seemingly concerned with the desires of our hearts so as to expressly create a commandment dealing with that exact issue. I think for most of us here this morning, we can probably get on board with a lot of the other commandments we've been studying over the last nine weeks. We understand things like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do things like, I don't know, murder. (laughs) <laughs> or we probably shouldn't commit adultery, we probably shouldn't steal, or we shouldn't lie. And we can do that because we can understand that doing those things will oftentimes not only cause harm to ourselves, but it com- causes harms to others. But coveting's different on that list. For some reason, when we read that, it doesn't seem to fit in it, it feels like it's not part of that list. It's a victimless crime, we tend to tell ourselves. And so why expend precious time and energy on a facet of our spiritual lives that most of us barely know we're doing and that most others never see or witness in our life as well? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Thankfully, the Bible is not silent about the dangers, the spiritual dangers of coveting in our lives, and as we're about to see in just a moment there it has been. Big ramifications for how we choose to love God and love others. And so I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles or your Bible apps. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to have the words from Scripture on the screen behind me. To Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 is where we're going to begin our study of God's Word this morning. And we're going to discover what the Bible has to say about this very important issue for us in our lives with Jesus. And so Exodus twenty seventeen reads... It says, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, similar to the preceding nine commandments, when we read the 10th and final commandment, we tend to do so with a high degree of spiritual confidence, You say, what do you mean by that? I mean that when most of us open God's word, we do so and read it as a morality checklist by which we can grade or rate our own morality or our favorability with God. And so just as we might tell ourselves that we're not that bad off because I've never actually murdered anybody, God, or because I've never actually committed grand larceny as is expressly forbidden the other previous commandments, so too we might also be tempted to tell ourselves or grade our covetousness on a moral bell curve. Because think about it for just a second. I think every one of us could say with a fair degree of certainty here this morning that no one has ever actually coveted your neighbor's ox your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's servant, right? Nobody has said to my God, themselves, oh my gosh, Steve just got the latest model of ox. I have to get that this year, no matter what. Nobody said that. And so as a result, we, we come to these texts and these portions of scripture and we just tend to kind of breeze through them because we assure ourselves that while we might not necessarily be Mother Teresa, we're certainly not as bad at coveting as some of the other people that we might know. And so we just kind of breeze on through. But to do so is to misunderstand and misinterpret God's word in general. Not only that, but such an approach truly fails to answer the question that we've set to answer from the very beginning of our time together this morning of why does coveting actually matter to God in the first place? To do so is to actually miss literally the heart of what God is driving at and giving the 10th and final commandment. And so in order to understand the why behind this final commandment, we need to have a biblical view of human desire. We need to understand how the Bible teaches and what the Bible says about our human desires. The word covet in Exodus 2017 is the Hebrew word uh, kamed, kamed. I can say that very easily. And it means to take pleasure in something. It doesn't say what that something is. It just means to take pleasure in something. And in that sense, we could say that it is a neutral word. You say, what do you mean by neutral word? It means that the Bible, when describing human desire, is in and of itself not inherently good or evil. Instead, human desire derives its moral attributes from the way in which we choose to engage it. The way in which we choose to engage it. And in that sense, it's not all that different from just a common hammer. Common hammer. Because unless you're actually Thor, there's no such thing as a good hammer or an evil hammer. A hammer is just a hammer but it derives its worth from the way in which it is used i can take a hammer and use it for good purposes and choosing to help build a home for someone in need or i can take that exact same hammer and use it for evil and wield it as a weapon to harm my neighbor And likewise, when we come to this idea of human desire in scripture, we see that the Bible presents it as a God-given gift that lacks moral agency in and of itself apart from how we choose to actually activate it. However, there is one important difference between our desire and a hammer. Okay, there's more than one, but there's one that's very important, And it's this, that why our desire may be neutral ethically, it is never in a neutral position as it relates to our hearts. Let me say that one more time. Our desire may be neutral ethically, but it is never neutral as it relates to our position in our hearts. And by that I mean this, I can take that hammer and put it on a shelf where it is never used It will collect dust and it will never be used. But our desires are always continuously being bent inside of us one direction or the other. Our desires can never sit on a shelf and just collect dust. They are always being engaged either positively or in a negative sense according to Scripture. And you say, well, Nick, how how do you know that? How could you say that about our desires, that our desires have to be engaged one way or the other? I say that because that's what Jesus said. I say that because that's what Jesus taught. When we look in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus is teaching on the subject of desiring money. And he has this to say about human desire. He says, no one can serve two masters. Now catch this next word, either Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When it comes to your desires, there is no resting place for them. It's either you're serving one or you're serving something else. Your desires cannot be Sweden. There is no neutrality when it comes to the position of our desires in our hearts. And so consequently, we begin to understand why God is so concerned with the things that we crave. We begin to understand why God is making such a big deal about the things that our hearts long after in as much as our hearts' desires influence the direction in which our heart leans. That which we crave influences that which our heart leans. And as we begin to get this understanding of why, it leads us to a place where we can start to ask the question, what? What is it specifically that your heart desires? What is it that your heart desires? What are the things in this life that pull your heart one way or the other? And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, gosh, I don't know, I don't even know how to quantify that. Let me help you a little bit this morning. When I was growing up, I had a, a teacher tell me that, Nick, if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you the desires of your heart. Now, I recognize that for anyone under the age of 30, that analogy is not going to make any sense because we don't use checkbooks like we used to anymore, or register, right? But if we were to take that and maybe modernize that example a little bit further, what if I said, if you were to show me your Instagram reels... If you were to show me your internet search history, I could tell you what the desires of your heart are. I could tell you where your heart's being pulled one way or the other. And in a negative sense, as we look at like Exodus 20:17, whenever human desire, that, that word kamad, is expressed in a negative sense, it's done so in a way that represents excessive or ungoverned or um, selfish desire for something. When we're in that place, when our heart is in that position, that is when we are most prone to covet and lust after someone or something. And what's fascinating about this is you begin to dive into this word study in the Bible. When the Bible talks about human desire, it never focuses on or puts emphasis on the external actions of the individual. But instead, the emphasis is always placed, it is always placed on the mental activity or the motivation behind the action. And this is important because for most of us today, we tend to be more focused on our outward actions, don't we? We tend to be more focused on the outward actions of other people and what they do. But as we look at the truth of Scripture, yes, our outward actions do matter to God. But the truth is, is that God is eternally and always and ever invested in the condition of your heart. He is always invested in the condition of your heart. He's concerned about the things that are going on inside. And this difference of perspective is highlighted beautifully in God's Word. We see this in 1 Samuel uh, 16, 7, where God declares. He says, the Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is infinitely and always more concerned about the condition of our hearts and the direction that our hearts are leaning. And this is ultimately why what we desire matters to God. Because the direction in which we choose or allow our heart to engage, either positively or negatively, will directly influence that which you worship. The direction your heart leans, either positively or negatively, will directly influence that which you worship. So when we allow our desires to be governed by our culture, when we allow our desires to be governed by our sin, And it pulls our desires downward into covetedness. The truth is, is that we're actually participating in a form of idolatry. We're actually participating in a form of idol worship. You say, man, that's harsh. You mean to say like when I'm craving my neighbor's 80-inch television that I am actually giving into idolatry? Yeah. Yeah if it's engaged in that negative sense in which scripture talks, where it's ungoverned, where it's selfish, where it's driven by selfish desire, God's word says that that is idolatry. And I'm not just making that up or saying that because I want you to feel conviction this morning. Paul in Colossians 3, 5 actually said it this way. He said, put to death what is earthly inside you, your sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desires, and then he closes with this, your covetedness, which is idolatry. And so why, why is coveting idolatry? Why, why is that so? Why is Paul making that statement? Why does God's word associate the things that we crave that are depart from God with the idea of worshiping false idols? And it's very simply because of this. Coveting is a form of idolatry because it replaces our devotion and our worship to God. It replaces, it circumvents, it supersedes our worship and devotion to God, which interestingly enough begins to tie back to the very first commandment that we started with, where God unequivocally told the Israelite people that they shall not worship any foreign gods. And so as we look now at the whole of the Ten Commandments from start to finish, we see that the Ten Commandments are bookended by God's directive to worship Him and worship Him alone. And that means whether we covet a new home in North Carolina, a new job, a bigger television, sex, money, or power. Whenever we give our heart in desirous worship to something that is temporal and fading, when that worship was always meant to be given from the outset of creation to God and God alone. We are engaging in idolatry. Our covetousness, and this is where our, where our coveting is so insidious, and this is where we fail to realize coveting is really a perversion of worship. It's a twisting of something that was meant only to be given to God, and instead is given to temporal things. And that is why, church, we see God making a big deal out of the desires of our hearts. We live in a world today that tells us what you desire, the things that you crave, it doesn't matter. Coveting is a bygone ethic from a bygone age. Don't worry about it. But as we see in Scripture, the Bible points a very different picture and tells us that every sinful human action is born out of desire for something apart from God. Every human action, every sinful human action that harms and maims others is born out of a desire to worship something other than God. Are you okay? This is where the good news of the gospel starts to intersect with our passage today. If you're sitting there this morning and you're feeling conviction, I'm there with you. I've been wrestling with it myself this entire week. God's been putting his finger on things. Look at this. Look at this. Look at these things that you're putting before me. I get it. But this is where the good news of the gospel starts to come in. This is where we see the good news of the gospel rescue us from our own sin and our own coveting. Because we're as coveting in a negative sense is what we choose to engage our desires in a direction that is something apart from God, the positive sense of that Hebrew word kamad in an equal and opposite direction would be that we are content, that we find contentment in life. Because if desiring or coveting is a desire for all the things that we don't have in life, then contentment is thankfulness and a deep, abiding satisfaction for the things that we have actually been given. And thankfully, the Bible is, again, not silent on the source of our ultimate contentment in life. Just as it talks about the dangers of being covetous in our life, the Bible also speaks directly to the source of our ultimate fulfillment and where we find satisfaction. And in fact, in the New Testament book of Philippians, the apostle Paul is writing a letter to the ancient church at Philippi, while sitting in a Roman prison cell. And as he's writing this letter, he makes an astounding statement about his source of contentment. And so he writes in Philippians four eleven through twelve this: For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, one might be tempted when we hear the apostles' words here to think that this is the words of some man who's riding from the deck chair of some five-star beach resort, that he's simply living the life of luxury and just speaking about contentment and being happy in life. But if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that that was not true. Homie had a very difficult walk and followership of Jesus. That guy endured shipwrecks at sea, was literally pelted by rocks, endured a poisonous snake bite while sharing the gospel. A snake bite. I would be done. I'm out. A snake bite. I'm done. He was imprisoned. And we also know that he was ultimately martyred and beheaded for his faith in Jesus. And yet through all of that, through everything that the apostle endured, he is able to say boldly that I have learned the secret to contentment in all things. Not just when life is good, but also and even when life is not so good. And this word that Paul uses, learned, he says it twice in the text, is really the key to begin to understand what it is he is getting at. Because the learning that Paul is talking about in this text is not merely like a mental acumen that he has achieved. It is a knowledge that he has gained through experience. In other words, Paul's just not blowing smoke or pontificating about the idea of contentment. He's not just making stuff up or pulling things out of the air. Whatever the secret was that Paul had to contentment, it was something that he had learned because he had lived it. He had touched it. He had tasted it. He'd experienced it. The contentment that Paul knew was as real to him as it would be to somebody who has visited and seen firsthand the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains as opposed to somebody who's just seen pictures of it in a book. That was how real the contentment was to the Apostle Paul. And in verse 13 of Philippians 4, Paul begins to reveal his hand by giving light to the secret of his contentment. He says this, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, church, if you've been a believer for more than five seconds, I guarantee you've probably heard that verse more than just a couple of times. You can drive over to Hobby Lobby, not today because it's closed, but you can drive over to Hobby Lobby on Monday and walk in there and see that verse printed on a myriad of different trinkets and doodads and signs all in Hobby Lobby to decorate your house with. Not to mention, if you get on social media today, there's probably a high likelihood that you're going to see a believer or somebody who follows Christ just throwing that verse out there as encouragement. And rightfully so. It's an inspiring verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's just not inspiring for many of the reasons that we associate with it in modern Christendom. Say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say it's not what we typically associate it with? When taken out of context, Philippians 4:13 is often thrown around by believers, and unfortunately by a lot of pastors out there -- is thrown around as a verse about overcoming difficulties and a victorious life in Christ. And it's true. There is certainly in a general sense, truth to that statement. But the context, the specific context of which Paul is leaning into when he's talking about this strength that comes from Christ was that he found it in the midst of trying circumstances that he was able to succeed or go through that because of the indwelling power of Jesus in his life. Paul's faith in Christ saw him through those circumstances not necessarily around or above them. It saw him through those circumstances. And the truth of Philippians uh, 4.13 is that Paul's words are less about overcoming and more about resting in contentment and the abiding satisfaction of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for Paul, the apostle, true contentment came through Christ and Christ alone. That's where it came. That's where it rested. Even as he sat in a Roman prison cell, languishing away, he was able to say that I have contentment in all things through the indwelling power of Christ. And this idea has incredible ramifications for our lives today in 2023 as followers of Jesus. Because it means that when we take those desires, that human desire, and we decide by the power of the Holy Spirit to engage them with good and godly intent, that our desires... Are not met through the shifting of our ever-changing culture or through the shifting of our ever-changing appetites but instead that they are rooted by faith in the unchanging love and unlimited power of Jesus Christ in our lives it was Jesus himself that told us Jesus himself said that I am able to satisfy your every desire I am able to satisfy your soul's longing for purpose. I am able to satisfy your soul's longing for a home. He said this in John 4.14. He said, But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. And indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so what does that mean for us today? It means very simply this. That... When we see a neighbor who has a nicer car than we drive, we can find contentment in Christ alone. When we see a neighbor who perhaps has better health than we do, we can find contentment in Christ alone. And even, and even, Lord Jesus, hear me now, even when we find a home that can't fit an 18 foot tall Christmas tree, we can find contentment. In Christ alone as believers our contentment doesn't isn't a result of the things that we have or that we don't have our true contentment rests in Jesus alone of course I understand church that we don't gather here for bumper sticker Christianity right we don't gather here just to hear nice words and it sounds good to say our true contentment is in Christ alone But it's something very different to begin to put that to practice in the everyday stuff of life when we're encountering temptation to covet the other people's stuff. In other words, how do we begin as believers to push back against our society's, I guess we could call it kind of their westward expansion of moving towards a society that is just consumed with covetousness and truly be a people who rest and live in the satisfaction that we find in Jesus alone. I think if we hearken back to Paul's words in Philippians 4, we would do well to remember that the apostle stated that his contentment in Christ was something that he had learned to do. In other words, Paul didn't come out of the womb just knowing to be content in Jesus and Jesus alone. It was something that in every circumstance, when things were good, when things were bad, when there were struggles and trials in life, Paul had to teach himself to be contentment in Christ, to find his contentment in Jesus And I think for us, that offers us some hope this morning. Because if the Apostle Paul, yes, the very man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, struggled and had to learn to be able to turn to Christ to find contentment in life, then we shouldn't be surprised either that we're going to struggle with it at times too. That it's something that we have to teach ourselves and learn through that process. And I think one of the ways that we could put our eyes on Jesus and take them off other people's stuff is just to begin by practicing mindful thankfulness. Now, I realize that I could take an entire sermon series to talk about that, and unfortunately, we don't have time to do that this morning. Some of you are saying, thank God. But our culture and us by proxy continually shouts the words, I want, I want, I want. I want that, I want that, I want that. That very few of us if ever in our spiritual pursuit of God ever stopped to say thank you. And so my challenge for us this morning as we conclude our Ten Commandments series is very simply this. It's a simple act of just on a daily basis, begin to create space to give thanks to God. Begin to create space just to give thanks to God for the things and the blessings that you have in life. It may be when you first get up in the morning that you're praising God for the blessings that you have. It may be at lunch, at work, that you're praising God for the blessings that you have. It may be at night when you lay your head down that you're praising God for the blessings that you have. Because the truth is, is that no matter where we find ourselves in life, we always have something to be thankful and grateful for. We always have the ability to give praise and glory to God for the things that we have in our life. For me, sometimes I get up and I just, and it sounds weird, but sometimes I just say, God, thank you for my legs that I can walk. Like, that I have the ability to get up each morning and go and and go to different places. Thank you, God, that I have the ability to breathe. Thank you, Father God, that I have the ability to go to the gym and work out. Whatever it is, we can all find things to be thankful to God for. And even if you're in a place where you say, my life is so busted up, there's really nothing that I can give thanks for, for the place that I am in. We can always come back to giving thanks for Jesus Christ. We can always come back to being in a place of giving thanks for the mercy that was poured out for us on a cross. That we have been brought into a family through faith in Jesus that we would not have been able to have been brought into otherwise. And that we have a hope and a future in Christ Jesus that can never be stolen or taken away. We always have things to be thankful for. We can always come to a place of saying, thank you, God. And so this week, I challenge you to find some space, some time, To take just a few minutes, it doesn't take long, but just to thank God for the things that you have in this life, and you'll begin to see that I think as Paul did, that the secret to contentment rests in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering.